Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current classic and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest tonight, Academy Award-winning special effects makeup artist, mechanical and visual effects expert, writer, producer, director, and my good friend, Robert Short, who I am pleased to call Bob. Hey, Bob. Hey, Steve. Good to be good to be here. As they say, good to be anywhere. <laughs> so glad to hear your voice and thank you for joining us tonight. I feel like I've known you forever. Uh, uh, you have known me forever. <laughs> that's, that's why it feel that's why it feels that way. Hey, it's a pleasure to join you guys. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, for those of you who don't know uh, Robert Short, Bob, um, he won his Academy Award for working on Beetlejuice, the uh, rather uh, classic uh, fantasy film that starred Michael Keaton and uh, Gina Davis, Alec Baldwin. Sorry, hard to believe that Alec Baldwin was in that. Um, I know, I know. And don't forget Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder, and we're going to get into a discussion of how you got involved and your good work on Beetlejuice. But I, I want to start out with a couple of different arenas. Um, I like to ask this, since this is a show about classic film and being a film buff and being a film fan, tell us about your childhood. Were you exposed to movies early on? Were, was your family a big movie going audience? You know, it's funny. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that, but uh, my my family was not my my 90 percent of my family was not film going film interested uh uh people but that 10 percent um uh is is it is interesting in that um my uh my sister uh who is uh m many years older than i am uh became an extra uh, for television shows and movies. Uh, but the fact that she was so much older than I was, I never really um, got, I never really got to know her or hang out with her by the time I was like, a, by the time I was like a little kid, she was already uh, out of the house and, and married and uh, had a life of her own. But um, uh, she uh, she was uh, a rather well-known extra and played in, uh, like I say, a lot of feature films and a lot of uh, television shows of the, you know, in the 60s and early, uh, early 70s. But uh, my exposure to films came from my dad, who was a car salesman, and he just had a love of, of film and, and um was always eager to take me. You know, he was always eager to take me to um, to the kind of films that uh, that I eventually liked. Um, and in saying that, basically, um, the very first film I can remember seeing the first the first two films I can remember seeing in a theater, and it were two that my dad took me to, was Invaders from Mars and It Came from Beneath the Sea. Wow, and uh, those made a a sizable impression on me as a little kid. Uh, Invaders from Mars being a being a thrill ride for me as a as a tiny little kid, 
until they brought out the master Martian in the globe with all the little tentacles. And I can remember myself screaming and running out of the theater <laughs> and, 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 um, and, and literally like falling to pieces in the, in the lobby going, I, I can't, I can't take it. I, I, it's too scary. It's too scary. And, uh, that's what, what city and, was this in? And I saw that at the majestic theater in Santa Monica. Oh, okay. And um, it came from beneath the sea was, I saw that in a theater that was connected to Pacific Ocean Park or what would become Pacific Ocean Park. It was down there in the Santa Monica Pier uh, area. And um, there was like a boardwalk area at that time in the uh, mid fifties. Um, so did you grow up in West LA? I, I grew up in, I, I, I bounced around between Santa Monica the Pacific Palisades and Malibu, our uh, my, the first beach house I ever uh, my family had was in like 1956, 57. So lived on the beach during that time, and um, uh, and so I got introduced. So I got so I got introduced to uh, movies. Um, uh, being, my first movies were were, <laughs> were monster movies. Because I, because you know, we'd go through the ads, you know, and my dad would go, "What do you, what, you know, what do you want to see?" And I'd go, you know, I mean, anything that had like a weird creature or something in it was like, you know, oh yeah, let's, yeah, I'd like to see that. And he had no qualms; he'd just go, "Okay, that's what we'll go see." And so, so was it? Um, was, then, it was it just you and your dad? Just me and my dad. Yeah. So he yeah, kind of uh, those, movies, those movies weren't really mom movies. Yeah, and so he kind of indoctrinated me into that. And then um, he would, um, he would, you know, but he didn't have any, you know, it's like he was, he was open to pretty much anything that I was, that I was interested in. And, you know, kids of that era, you, you get into a, a particular um, age group and um, uh, he would, he would, you know, if I requested to go see something like Blood Feast, he'd go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and is, that, so, is, that, is that Herschel Gordon Lewis? Yeah, I think so. Where you know, where the guy is like, you know, all, all I remember was as a kid, it was really cool because he was chopping people up and there was blood everywhere. So you you've always been comfortable with blood effects. I I was the uh, classic Frady cat. I mean, I you ran out of the uh, theater invaders from Mars. I lived in the lobby with my friends because they. They were all much braver than I. I remember, uh, I think it was um, Horrors of the Black Museum, one of those British horror movies oh, yeah. that they were importing. And I guess there's a, a sequence where somebody puts some binoculars, binoculars up to their eyes. Oh, I'll never forget the binocular scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I forgot. I never saw it. So it was. <laughs> it uh, yeah, was, well, I've never I've never used binoculars since. So did you venture east? Did you ever go to the no. Pickwood on Pico well, and Westwood? Of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering. We, we, hit, we, hit, we hit all the theaters that were, that, you know, that were around at, uh, at, that, at that time. Oh, yeah. I'm wondering if you were in line with me. Probably we didn't know each other. I mean, we know, we know we didn't know each other, but I'm sure you were in line at the Pickwood the, uh, in 1960 when they played the Time Machine. Oh, undoubtedly. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I mean that, that all the George Powell films, you know, Destiny, you know, whatever Destination Moon and uh, War of the Worlds and uh, what you call um, you know, um Time Machine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera was uh you know was definitely my uh play it was definitely my playground uh my in my formative years courtesy of my dad who was like where are we off to now <laughs> so you, which film you you have developed such a, a kind of renaissance man's uh, uh field of expertise in so many areas of filmmaking um when did you think in your life that you could actually work in the film business um, you know, I, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, the James Bond films in a way opened up so many different avenues for me as far as inspiration goes. Um, it, it was around the time of seeing Goldfinger, um, that it was like, you know, this is kind of the stuff I'd like to do. So, you know, the, the Goldfinger influence of, you know, how is, I think Goldfinger was like the first film that I was really intrigued to like figure out how it was done, you know, if there was a place to, you know, um, uh, be involved in films like this. And, and it, and it kind of started me on that, on that path of, of stunt work, you know, wanting to be a, wanting to be a stunt man. And uh, that was really my focus in the in the beginning when i started thinking about doing you know being being in film which is why we used to do home movies a lot that had a lot of stunt work in it um and a little and what was what's interesting is that the home movies that i used to make with my friends you know had had a lot of action in it and a little bit of makeup effects and special effects in it so I think that was where kind of things were starting to gel with me that, um, hey, you know, um, not only can do the stunt type, you know, the stunt work, but, you know, there's this other field of, of interest as well. And that comes from also being a monster kid, you know, of the, of the early 60s and famous monsters of film land and being intrigued by, you know, by being, you know, being intrigued by, um, you know, monster, monster movies, you know, the classics and, um, and, uh, you know, uh, having grown up on, you know, the, the uh, television reruns of, of the Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Creature from the Black Lagoon, et cetera, et cetera. So, so after high school, did you, did you consider going to university or did you get right into the business? No, I went, to, I, I did uh, a couple of years of, uh, of, um, uh, Low, you know of junior college right and uh skipped uh <laughs> skipped when it you know uh one, one of my semesters you know took a bit of a hit when i um when i took off from class to go uh visit the uh, set of diamonds are forever while they were filming in southern california uh, but man, it managed, man, it managed to do, you know, managed to catch up on my classes after doing the, uh, the, the diamonds are forever run, you know, but yeah, I wasn't going to miss out on, um, uh, you know, a, a Sean Connery, James Bond film being shot locally. So I did everything I could to go to every location that there was. And then my good friend, uh, at the time, Danny Biederman, um, who's a, a collector and filmmaker, um, had gotten permission to actually do a documentary as a student filmmaker 
a, a one day a one day stay on the set to interview the cast and crew and um uh fortunately dan you know fortunately dan asked me to go down as as his as his like production assistant so we spent a, a day officially on the set interviewing people and that was the day that they were shooting at lax with the arrival of um the peter frank's body and uh, the scene with Sean Connery and uh, Norman Burton, you know, uh, looking at the body. Okay, and James, so, where, where did you hide the diamonds? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so it would that mean that, you know, I, I spent many, many days on the diamond sets unofficially, <laughs> but that was my only official day, thanks to Danny. And actually, you know, it was it was great because we got a chance to actually sit down and uh, obviously interview with, you know, interview a guy Hamilton and Norman Burton and spend a good, you know, half hour sitting with Sean Connery. Now, what, what is your memory? It. I mean, obviously, Sean Connery, what an icon and and somebody you very seldom come in contact with in normal life. What was your impression of him? Oh, I, you know, my impression with, with Connery is that he was, you know, he he is that he's a, you know, it's it's hard to put it into words, but he just had, you know, as people have always said, he has a presence, you know, it's just, he's magnetic. And um, he was very, I don't want to say, you know, down to earth, I'd say more erudite as far as, you know, sitting down with Danny and, and, um, and doing the, and doing the interviews um he understood the importance of what Danny was trying to do as a student and he gave him his full he gave him his full attention and um you know was very um you know was very open about any any questions and and was serious about his as serious about his answers um and um uh, you know just um uh, you know, was was very willing to give his. It was very willing to give his time, without without restriction. That, 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 that. What, what a what a terrific um, boon to, you know, to most, Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, most of the time when when Con, you know, most of the time when I would see Connery on set, you know, when I was unofficially there, <laughs> is that he's very serious about getting his shots done, and then. Um, he he did joke around he he when he's up and about you know he's 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 jokes around with people and he's just you know he's just one of he's he is kind of sort of one of the guys when he's around the crew and then when he's not doing that he's sleeping you know it's like it's very arduous making a film in between you know the how much time you just spend doing nothing so he is very he's very good at sleeping you know, it's like when he's not needed and he doesn't have to rehearse and he doesn't have something to joke around with the crew or whatever. He spent a good a good deal of time just sleeping to keep his energy up. So um, I was introduced to you by Bill Malone and right. Bill Malone, obviously uh, a director friend of ours. Uh, and um, I believe that you and Bill started working together at Don Post Studios. Is that correct? Yeah, Bill. I I met Bill working at uh, Don Post Studios. Bill and I started on the very first. On, uh, 
Bill and I started on the very same day at Don Poe Studios and were handed airbrushes and told to paint a bunch of low-end Frankenstein masks with the airbrushes and neither one of us was familiar with what the hell to do with a, uh, you know, what the heck to do with a uh, paintbrush, I mean, a uh, airbrush. And so, uh, yeah, we just kind of started trial by fire. Here, jump on in, guys. Was that your first entertainment industry job? Uh, n- uh, no, I had um, uh, previous, previous to working at, at Don Post Studios, I had done a couple of low budget um, films doing stunt work. Um, and, um, do you one remember, of, do you remember uh, the title? Yeah, yeah. One of which is, co- is called baby needs new shoes. It was during the black exploitation years. And, um, I played a, uh, cop, um, uh, trying to take, uh, I, pl- I played a cop that gets involved in a, um, in a, uh, fight scene in, um, in a pool hall. And um, uh, that that was probably my first professional job was was doing stunt work for uh, for uh, for that film. And so you're working at Don Post, you're starting to get into making masks. Um, you've done some acting, you've done some stunt work. There were a lot of paths kind of. Yeah, there were, you. there were a well, lot of paths. Yeah, there were a yeah. lot, there were a lot of paths, uh, beckoning me at the, at the time. And, um, what, uh, what kind of happened by going over to Don Post Studios, um, was that Bill had Robbie, the Bill had built a copy of Robbie, the robot and was starting to rent out Robbie on a regular basis to the studios. And, um, uh, he needed, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't portray Robbie all the time. So he needed somebody to be in the suit, um, who could do, who could, who understood acting and who understood stunt work in case the, the robot fell, o- you know, in case the robot fell over and could take a, could take a fall and take the impact and stuff. So I kind of segued, uh, I, I kind of segued, uh, from doing the stunt work into concentrating more on building stuff because um, I was intrigued by how, you know, Robbie got built and um, and the fact that I was learning more and more about how to build stuff and paint stuff and how things were created being around Don, being around Don Post Studios that segued from, you know, so it segued from... Uh, doing the stunt work into building stuff and supervising on set um, because of because of Robbie the robot really and the fact that uh, I I had that um, uh, Rick Baker used to drop in uh, occasionally um, with new stuff that he wanted to show uh, Don Post and so. Um, Rick, Rick kind of like started to show the way to, uh, you know, a lot of us that were at Don Post Studios that, you know, there was, you know, that there was money to be made and you could make a regular living off of creating stuff for, for films. And then what happened is that, uh, we eventually, 
because of uh, I think I think a lot because of Bill's and my interest in in movie projects. Um, when we moved, when Don Post Studios moved into their larger location, we created a lab specifically for doing film projects. So slowly but surely, Don Post Studios began to get film projects in, and um, and uh, so there was this uh, logical evolution between, as for my for myself, a logical evolution uh, going from doing stunt work to um doing special effects and visual effects um i, I know that so there was uh, a natural there were there was a natural progression i know that bill uh was given i guess it was what well, low-key assignment to make a mask for john carpenter's halloween and as i recall the mask was actually a william shatner mask from star trek that was probably in in the uh in the don post catalog did you have anything to do with that yeah, well, I was, I was there during the, you know, I was, I was there on the day that we got the, that we got the assignment. And so we were all kind of hands, hands on with, you know, the discussions of, you know, well, um, Carpenter's guys have asked for a kind of a blank human, just a generic kind of face and want it white. And we had debate. We had a little bit of a debate as to whether or not, whether or not to use Spock, or 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 Captain Kirk. And Kirk won out because you know Spock had the pointed ears. And so Kirk won by default. And so I think I'm probably the person who like wandered around and found a defective Kirk mask. Bill cut the eyes out to make them larger. Um, the um, uh, the the hair department um, put hair on it, and um, and Bill de Bill decided to because the Shatner mask has brown hair on it, and Bill decided to make it black. So he sprayed a coating of black, coat black over the top coat of the hair, and in any so so in any case the the just the. The, the journey of um, Michael Myers from Don Post Studios is that, you know, the guy, the, the Carpenter guys didn't have a budget, wanted us to come up with something that was very generic. Uh, we put this, that we, you know, Bill uh, spearheaded putting it together. And of course, Bill sculpted the original mask. Um, but we were all kind of like hands on getting this thing out the door. And um, we kind of thought it was a joke. It was like, really? <laughs> You're gonna make this thing scary? It's like this white face of William Shatner, but nobody, but the thing is nobody, we never told anybody that it was William Shatner that we had chosen out of our stock. Um, so we just let that ride, we just, we just let that ride. And it wasn't until years later that people started to pick up on interviews and things that, you know, we talked about the William Shatner <laughs> it being a William Shatner mask. Now, now so one that, of the one of the guys you started to work with a little bit later was Greg Jean. Yep, Greg, who passed away just recently. I know. I heard that. I was sorry to hear that because I know you were good friends. How yeah. did you? How did you hmm. first get in touch? And we should mention that Greg was a master at creating miniatures uh, in many ways. How, how did you meet Greg? Yeah. Well, Greg, Greg Jean, who created you know, who created the mothership for Close Encounters. 
um, I met I met Greg in the early '70s because, um, and this is before Greg was doing doing you know miniature was was doing um, major miniatures. Um, we were both we were both science fiction fans and Star Trek fans and Man from Uncle fans, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I met Greg because we were we were sharing a room where I was putting on with friends of mine a Man from Uncle display of props from the show. And Greg was putting and Greg was um, doing a Star Trek um, display with props from the show. And um, so we, uh, we, we met over my collection of Uncle Props and his collection of Star Trek props and um, uh, became fast friends. And then eventually, years later, um, Greg would hire me on as, as, um, as one of his assistants on films like um, Star Trek, Firefox, and the Close Encounters Special Edition. Did you work a little bit also on 1941? Yeah. Um, I worked on 1941 for Greg doing, doing uh, miniatures. I was working on making molds of the planes, the Beechcraft that flies down Hollywood Boulevard. One of my assignments was um, creating the radio controlled cars that drive up and down the street uh in the scenes on on hollywood boulevard um so yeah i was just kind of, i was just a general you know a, a general miniature um uh effects builder on, on were that, you on, working were directly you, with greg bob were you on hollywood boulevard when they were shooting the live action stuff or was that on a sound stage well that was sound stage or whatever it was okay yeah I guess one of your more uh, illustrious moments was uh, a couple years later when you wind up uh, working on ET and they give you a unique assignment. Yeah. Oh, well, before I go before I go into that, I'm just going to back up and say the the tra the my major transition was from from Don Post Studios to full time film work was. The last one of the last projects I had a hand on was was you know was on a periphery was the Halloween project, and then um, and then came in a request to do piranhas from John Davison to do uh, piranhas for Joe Dante's Piranha, and um, he needed somebody to do um, blood make makeup effects and stuff, and uh, because I had a diving background. Um, uh it, it fit it fit rather well so myself and chris Wallace teamed up because we were both working there at don post studios at the time and don uh the studio turned down the offer to do piranha and i segued with chris into work into doing the underwater blood blood and guts effects for piranha and that was the uh first uh you know, first makeup effects show that uh, that I worked on, and that that gave me the ability to segue from working at Don Post Studios into the film into the film business um, um, completely. 
and um, we, had, uh, we had we had uh, you know myself and Chris Wallace and Rob Botine and Phil Tippett and you know John Sales wrote the film and Joe Dante directed it and uh, you know uh, and all you know and a, and a great cast et cetera et cetera so that was kind of the, Piranha was the was the was the key to you know moving into the into the film industry well, and you, um, you, you once gave me the formula for making good blood effects good blood. so my son <laughs> could do his uh that's right his class project is the blood effect work you do on land different than what you do in the water yeah a different mixture slightly mm -hmm. um coloration amount of um uh, amount of flour <laughs> differs uh, of course, that was back when you had to make all your own blood, and now you can just walk into a, a into a physical effects shop, um, supply shop, and just buy whatever, <laughs> buy whatever appropriate blood you need. Um, well, so that was. Don't don't tell Yano Scorzini. I think he might take you up on. Uh, it. Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> the original Night Stalker. The original uh, Night Stalker, which is which is funny uh, because I remember when I first met you, uh, you and Bill were making a spoof of the Night Stalker called sure. the Night Turkey, and as I recall, you starred as the detective. Uh, uh, no, I starred as the reporter. Oh, the reporter. <laughs> okay, who was the detective? Cor Carl Kornchak. Right, right, exactly. That's what I meant. I meant. <laughs> I know you meant. I know you meant the here. But yeah, we did an hour-long spoof on the night turkey, and you have to remember the night turkey was designed and created by Rick Baker for that film. And um, again, we had everybody from Robbie the Robot, you know, Bob Burns, the, you know, um, um, <laughs> we had we had people who would event it. it Night Turkey was also one of those weird little films that it's like a who's who of, of the industry when you actually break out who was in it and the weird parts that they played and things. Um, you know, one of the parts that was a minor part was played by somebody who would become one of the major directors at, um, uh, at uh, oh God, um, at like Nickelodeon, all their animation films and stuff, you know, we just, uh, you just turn around and it's like, you know, uh, people that it were in like little bit parts all the way through the film became like, you know, regular, you know, it, it, you know, big, had, had fairly big acting careers and the technical people, you know, went on to do bigger things and stuff. So it was, an, it, you know, Night Turkey is an interesting thing. Um, cons and again, started starting with the fact that, you know, Rick Baker created and, and designed the Night Turkey itself. Well, you know, I always associated the projects you and Bill Malone were putting together as just a lot of fun. They, Hollywood can get very serious and very, you know, very challenging to do anything creative. And yet every time I would turn around, you and Bill were doing something really fun. So yeah, and I think we followed up. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I think we followed up with a with a pilot that we tried to we tried to sell and could never get any traction, which was we we created Holmes and Walston which starred Robbie the robot as a robot that's been activated by um, 
act activated by um, oh, I, I want to say Beaver Cleaver. Um, Jerry Mathers. <laughs> Jerry Mathers. Jerry Mathers inherits his dead uncle's house. And in the house, because the the uncle was a uh, mad inventor, he's invented Robbie the robot and programmed the robot to think that he's Sherlock Holmes. So when the pro when the robot is activated, he acts and and deduces just as if he was Sherlock Holmes. And because uh, Jerry Mather's character is called uh, Walston, he immediately thinks that it's Watson. And the two of and and Watson is dragged into the world of a robot Sherlock Holmes as he's like solving crimes. Well, it it sound, it still sounds like it work could work. I, <laughs> I don't think it should should be completely forgotten. So let's <laughs> let's let's segue ahead a little bit because I, I think the uh, the fans yeah. would love to know how you uh, suddenly got the the ET assignment because I think that was a unique well, assignment. ET came about ET came about because my good my good friend Mitch Suskin, who I had met on 1941, who. Um, went uh, who went on to be a visual effects supervisor um had gotten an had gotten an assignment to be one of the uh, visual effects supervisors on on et and there was a then what happened is that there was just a crunch time where the heart light that carlo had created for et wasn't it, it wasn't functioning properly and they were having a hard time figuring out a solution for it. So Mitch basically brought me in as an extra pair of eyes to see if I could maybe come up with a solution or some uh, some direction as to what we could do, you know, what could be done with it. And uh, and I came up with a I came up with a suggestion that everybody really liked. And Carlo said, "Well, uh, let's let Bob." You know, let, let's let's have Bob do do that. You know, um, and um, that way, Carlo could concentrate on getting the rest of his stuff done. He wouldn't have to worry about the heart light. And so Mitch and I got together and figured out um, what to build, how to build it, what it was going to look like, and um, and basically we're given a you know I was given a free reign to just you know um put together concepts which we then ran by Stephen and um uh, we were kind of going with the we were we were going with what Stephen basically thought of ET as being which was a plant himself so he's kind of a he's supposed to be like a living plant and so the idea was to create something that was plant-based um that uh, that you could see and the and the heart light was a and and the reason why we kind of and the reason why the heartlight got turned over to uh, myself and Mitch was that it was only supposed to appear in one scene and that's the that's the van in the playground where um, all the kids meet up and ET is in the back of the van and the heartlight glows and um, uh, and that was it that that was originally the only place that the heart light was supposed to work and um uh and the production was so impressed by how the heart light looked and what it kind of brought to the character is that it, it got 
it uh, it then was expanded as a concept throughout the whole throughout the whole film. And beautifully done, and certainly is present in that wonderful scene when Elliot d discovers that E.T. is not dead, and just yeah. uh, just a marvelous moment. Um, so. Um, I want to devote the last bit of our interview to uh, your Academy Award-winning work on Beetlejuice, which is a few years later. Um, tell us how you got involved with Beetlejuice. Yeah. Um, a friend of um, uh, a friend of mine at the time uh, became the visual effects supervisor on it, fellow by the name of Alan Monroe, who's a excellent excellent supervisor and does his own storyboarding and is a is a fabulous artist and alan um alan got the uh alan got the assignment to do to be the visual effects supervisor on um on the show and um he um uh he he <laughs> he asked me if i would be interested in it because he knew my you know, my extensive, what, what happened is that, is that, is that it was decided early on that, that Alan and, and Tim wanted to try and do everything in camera as much as they could so that we weren't working off of second generation negatives. And every time you do an effect shot uh, at that time, um, you, you lost, you know, you lost clarity of image because you were going into the lab and you were replicating the, the, the prints several times over in order to get the overlay of the, of the effect shots. And to avoid that, to keep the film much fresher and in a way more intense for the audience, Tim and, uh, Tim and Alan, um, wanted to try and do the film uh, first take. Um, what you see on film is the, what you actually see. So um, Alan knew that I had done a lot of practical effects that were sleight of hand regarding image, you know, the visuals in some of my in some of my projects. So he he knew that you know that. I could go that I could go in that in I could go in that direction, and um, so um, so so Alan's the one who who Alan's the one who brought me on board, and I had to do um, I and I had to do in order to get the project I had to do a sample creature first, and it's a it's a creature that pops out of a grave that's supposed to be Beetlejuice, and. Um, uh, so it was like a test project to see if, if, you know, if, if we could handle, um, if we could handle capturing, um, Tim's sensibility design wise. And so after having done that sample creature and, um, and, um, and, a, and a test sequence, um, I, then we just forged ahead with the rest of the project, but the, but the idea um was to you know was to shoot the film uh using magician's sleight of hand so that when we shot something it didn't go to the lab it was actually shot there on stage 
And what you see in the film is is exactly what you saw on stage and what we filmed. Well, so that, that test scene uh, that you did is that similar to when <coughs> Beetlejuice is asked, "Are you scary?" And all of a sudden turns into and, like a monster. Is that similar? No, I, I, no. It precedes that actually. It's, okay. Uh, originally, uh, in the original script. Um, when they, when Barbara and, and Adam uh, uh, um, dig up his um, coffin, what pops out of the coffin in the original script and in the storyboards is the skeletal ghoul creature, flying creature that pops up out of the grave and terrorizes Adam and Barbara. And then after their shock, it turns out that the, that the creature is actually a puppet, that Beetlejuice is uh, puppeteering from one of the trees. And so originally it was going to be this puppet creature thing that came out and um, and um, and surprised them. But in the film, you see that, you know, what was decided on is, you know, it was one step too far. It was just like, we don't really need to do this step. We'll just have Beetlejuice come out of the coffin and come out of the grave and fly over to him. So, so, so that your 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 principal moment of glory on this movie is certainly the waiting room uh where uh, barbara and adam meet the various uh i guess you'd call them victims yeah. of recent mayhem and yeah. I, I think what's I, I think we've all we were all just charmed by the gruesomeness and cra craziness of those characters uh, when you came to the film were those designs already there or did you have to come up with them uh, the designs originated from 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 Tim and Alan, um, and my challenge was really to capture exactly what what uh, Tim and Alan wanted to, wanted to do with the characters. So, uh, so you know, so my challenge was more not in the design of the characters. Let's take the the char man, the little guy who's smoking, who's died in bed smoking and he's burned to a crisp and he's offering Adam, you know, <laughs> a cigarette. And uh, um, the drawing that Tim did of that, of that charred guy, um, I got the drawing and sometimes Tim is very loose in his, in his sketching and they don't follow human proportions they're just like the sketch is the sketch and um at times i would have to go to tim and say do you you know if, if we build this this way the legs the the proportions of all the legs and you have no toes on the feet and the fingers are gonna are a lot longer and then the this is this is like a you know kind of a an impression of a human so I just need to I just need to double check that you don't want a real skeleton you want you want this you know you want this design and Tim would go yep uh, just do you know yep we're just going with we're just yeah just do that design and I'm like okay we'll do so that was that was our challenge was okay uh, we've got this strange little character but we've got to make him believable and give him some you know we've got to in in its own weird way we have to make it still feel alive and and believable and stuff and capture you know capture tim's vision and that, that was the challenge all the time was 
was you know was was finding a way to to you know uh, to you know create this stuff so that there was a you know so um so there was a kind of an emotional connection to these guys um and no matter how fan no matter how fantasy or far out they um they got which is you know i i'm very proud of like how the charman turned out and i love the fact that you know people still recognize harry the haunted hunter with his little shrunken head you know and all the subtleties that you know brought him to life you know his slight breathing and how his eyes work and track and you know looks around and you can really feel empathy for him that you know this poor guy he's stuck in the waiting room and his head's shrunk and and he's got all these crazy people around him and stuff. And so, you yeah, and I, and, and which brings me around to part of doing the job of these kind of characters is always about trying to create some kind of character for them. You know, it's all about creating character. You know, as you're as you're building this stuff and operating it on set, you're trying to imbue the the lifeless stuff with with character and something that has emotion, and when will create um, empathy. You're working in an arena. Is it uh, overall referred to as animatronics? Is that accurate? Yeah, animatronics, special makeup effects. You know, it can be appliances on somebody or it can be a full body that's being, you know, that, that's that's being manipulated with cables and servos and stuff. But again, you know, it's like um, the um, the, you know, the waiting room characters were all fun because they had their own very specific individual things like the, you know, <laughs> as you know, like the the. Um, you know the the magician's assistant who's been cut in half, or you know the guy with the the diver with the great white shark that's half that, that's you know that's bitten him on the leg. Um, did you also have a guy with the tire treads? In yeah, his we head? had the flat. We had the messenger who we called Hall called the messenger who'd been run over by a truck, who's you know been flattened and he's now the messenger and you know. Um, it was it, it Beetlejuice was an interesting project in that we had we 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 had such a tight time schedule that we had to schedule building things so that we would get something built, send it to stage, shoot it while we were building the very next thing that was going to go to stage. So we were in this constant <laughs> we were in this constant state of panic all the time of get the thing get the next you know get the next thing done and get it on the set get the next thing done and get it on the set there wasn't enough time to build everything and then test it and then get and then and, and then slowly but surely you know just come on stage as things were needed we were literally you know build the next thing and hope that we figured out all the problems before it gets to you know get gets to set um and again, we tried, you know, again, we tried to shoot everything in camera, which meant, you know, Alec Baldwin's severed head was shot live on set using a magician's trick. Um, his his head being held up by Gina, you know, by uh, Gina on stage, you know, is shot live, you know, he's, he, um, uh, again, with a with a fake section of desk in front of him so that 
it looked like his head had been severed. And then all the gadgets that are needed, the body parts and things to convince people that, you know, Alec stands up with it headless and runs upstairs and runs through, a, you know, runs upstairs, opens a door and slams a door. And all the mechanical bodies needed for that. And the live actor stuff with a different, with a, with a neck piece and then combine all the, and combine all this stuff together using Alan's, you know, uh, following Alan's storyboards where we knew how we could, again, a lot of it's without cuts, you know, so we knew, you know, we'd, we'd have to very carefully rehearse, you know, what part to use to get something done, you know, to convince the, you know, convince the audience that, you know, that we had a headless guy running up the stairs and, um, and, and then uh, Beetlejuice himself goes through a little bit of a transformation. Doesn't he have like an elongated body at one point? Mm, well, we do have the, you know, when he does showtime, when he when he gets into the showtime uh, segment where he shows up in the um, in the carousel hat and right. then unfolds his arms and then the mallets the the balls at the end of his arms turn into mallets we had to find a way to physically change the shape of the mallets in real time and um and then create a whole uh, a whole unit that allowed him to stand there and bring his arms up with these giant mallets at the very at the end of the you know at the end of his arms <laughs> And stuff and do it in a do it in a you know do it in like a, a medium shot that shows the whole thing again um figuring out without cables how to lift how to lift the arms and make the ends the mallets so feather light that it wouldn't it wouldn't be a problem at that extension so there were a lot of just you know a lot of it was um um you know, just innovate innovation and um and uh, trying to solve, you know, just trying to solve the practical problems of how to make all this stuff work, let, let alone, you know, make the, you know, <laughs> um, you know, make, uh, make, make the characters uh, believe, you know, believable in the midst of all the, in, in all the, the craziness. Um, so, yeah, we did. So our, our hands were full with everything from the waiting, you know, we'd turn around and do the waiting room and then we'd do a, animatronic beetle that's that that um that is in a that's in a miniature of the of the attic as beetlejuice is trying to convince lydia to say his name and then we turn around and do a fully animatronic uh fly a giant fly that was about a foot long that has to scurry across the graveyard and grab the zagnut thing so you know you turn you, you you know we were we were always on our toes because there were so many different kind of disciplines that we were having to do well it's funny because today uh, uh with digital effects being a tool in the palette of the special effects team you think that a lot of what you did then was a specialized art that in many ways, I guess, is a bit of a lost art. Would you say that? Although I would think that special effects people, especially floor effects people, still get involved in ingenious efforts. Oh, yeah. They, they you know, they still do. Now, you know, they, when they have the time and they have the, you know, when they, when they have the time and they can, and they can do the experiments and, 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 and stretch their wings, you know, it still gets, it, you know, people will still do it 
you know, that that way when they do get a chance. But for the most part, you know, you got time, you know, time, you know, time constraints always bring you back to, you know, do it the most efficient way these days. And the most efficient way is just pretend it's there and we'll put it in post. You know? Were you surprised to receive an Oscar nomination? Well, I think everybody, I think anybody and everybody is, uh, I would like to think that anybody who gets an Oscar nomination is surprised when they get it. Um, now winning, that's another, <laughs> that, that's another thing. I don't think anybody ever expects to win, but at the same time, you're always, you know, you're always hopeful. And, um, so, so, so describe the moment you're in the, uh, you're at, where was it? Was it at the shrine or was it downtown? Or the, the, the shrine. Downtown? No, the shrine. The, the shrine. So you're at the shrine in, I guess, early 89. And, uh, they call. Yeah. Well, it's one of, I, I, you know, it's very easy for me to recall, you know, very easy for me to recall that, uh, just because for me, and I've heard it from other people as well. You know, you you have a, you know, yeah, you kind of, you, you've run the acceptance speech through your head and you've talked to your teammates as to who's going to speak first and who's going to say what. And, but at, but at the same time, you don't really take it seriously. <laughs> it's like, all right, I know we got to go through this, you know, but the competition's really stiff and, and uh, we just have to see, you know, we just have to see what happens. But I will say that once your name gets called and they say, and the, you know, and the Oscar goes to the second after the name Beetlejuice was announced, it goes blank. There's no memory of being, <laughs> there's no memory of getting up from the seat. There's no memory of being on the stage. There is no memory of what I said or anybody else said. I literally, I have this big blank space between the moment the name was called and I got backstage with um, um, Sybil Shepherd, who basically broke the spell with her going, can I carry that? <laughs> went, well, sure. What did we just do? <laughs> so uh, the only recollection i have of the actual you know the actual winning the award is what i've seen on like youtube <laughs> go oh my god that's what we did now you're cold yeah you're no it just it literally the, the brain just doesn't want to at least my brain just didn't want to process it your co-winners together were v neil and steve laporte, steve LaPorte. had you worked with them before i worked with i am I hadn't worked with, yeah, I hadn't worked with Steve, but uh, I had known, I had known um, um, V for years previously, and we'd worked on projects together, and we'd palled around, and um, um, she was one of the people that I recommended, she was, she, well, actually not one of, but she was, there were several of us who actually recommended her for Beetlejuice all separately at different times. And um, uh, having, having worked with, with, um, with V and being a good friend, I, um, I, I, I recommended her for Beetlejuice. And uh, 
um, several other people on the production, including the producer who knew V also recommended her. So she was getting recommended. She was getting recommendations left and right. Um, so yeah, no, I knew, I knew, um, I knew V, um, uh, just from her makeup work and, and the two of us working on, uh, small TV movies and stuff together. Yeah. Four years later, after you got your, uh, Oscar, I worked with Steve Laporte on the Space Hunter movie, Space Hunter Adventures in the mm -hmm. Forbidden Zone, which we shot in Utah and Vancouver. And I remember Steve's uh, nickname at that time was Boss Clown. I guess he had done a lot of clown work, maybe oh, as an habitation. Right. Well, Bob, this has been great. Oh. You know, I, I'm beginning to realize that it's virtually impossible to do your story in one fell swoop. <laughs> as, it's, as we've said, yeah. there were many paths you've fallen, and I know that yeah, you've got, we, had, I mean. Yeah, because we just, you know, I mean, of course, Beetlejuice is the obvious one. I just got through doing, I just got through doing interstitial programming interviews for the spy film that I wrote, Program to Kill. So I've done, I've written ninja films and spy films, and I've written uh, TV movies for Disney and... Um, well, I'll tell you, there's a couple things I want to do. I want to bring you back because I want to bring a bunch of us uh, James Bond fans oh, yeah. to talk about the 60th anniversary of Dr. No in uh, October. Yeah, I think that could be a lot of fun. But I think I think I'd like to bring you back for uh, another discussion about the transition that Hollywood went into from uh, practical to digital, because I know you're you mean the you day know, you mean the. You mean the day they? You mean the day they released Jurassic Park, and we all went. We're all extinct. <laughs> the dino, the dinosaurs were revived, and you became extinct. That, yeah. that's the challenge. That's there. <laughs> well, this has been terrific, uh, everyone. We've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies, a wonderful interview with my friend Robert Short. Uh, Bob Short is just uh, is a is a just a, a terrific creator on so many levels and he brings such a fun attitude to filmmaking. Uh, I, I've, I've always enjoyed our conversations and I look forward to having you again on the show, Bob. Well, I look for I look forward to it. Just to, you know. On behalf of our producer, Ben Shrewsbury, Lock 22 Network, thank you for listening to Saturday Night at the Movies and we'll see you next week. Stay safe out there.